John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. If you would look at your bulletin insert and find the Brookwood Litany of Community, and I've asked Tim to lead us in this, this is something we're going to go through over the next few weeks just so we can really get woven into the consciousness of ourselves and our church corporately, just where we are moving to these different subjects that are dealt with in the litany, and hopefully this will also be a means of voicing our commitment to all that we recite. So let us stand together as Tim leads us in this litany. We are a community of covenant. Jesus prayed for those who will believe that they will be one. Paul tells us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so by our love for God's word and our love for each other, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And so by our love for God's word and our love for each other, After Adam and Eve sinned, they were afraid, and they tried to hide from God. Jesus forgives and sets free those who are transparent in their brokenness. And so by our love for God's word and our love for each other, Jesus wants us to bond with each other, but that is not enough. He wants us to build bridges beyond each other to those whom we do not know those who are different from us, those who are equally a part of his kingdom. And so, by our love for God's word and our love for each other, before we offer ourselves in worship, Jesus tells us to resolve matters with those who have something against us or those whom we hold something against. We must endeavor to make peace with those who wrong us or misunderstand us. And so by our love for God's word and our love for each other, the church of Pentecost lived together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Paul thanked God every time he thought of the church, and he was confident that the God who created that good thing called the church 
will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so, by our love for God's word and our love for each other, O God of community of three in one, of the church as one, we covenant to be your people in genuine community. Honest with our world, there for our world, taking care of the world. Real people, real life, real love. Amen. You may be seated. I still love the old story of the captain of a ship that was going along and he was looking through high-powered binoculars and he was looking on a coastline of a small island and he saw a guy frantically waving his arms and he decided quickly that this guy must be shipwrecked and indeed this guy had been shipwrecked for years, kind of been surviving like the castaway movie and he was there trying to get his attention and he got the attention of the captain and they got as close to the shoreline as they could in the big ship and then they embarked on a smaller boat, the captain and a few of his crew and rowed the boat to shore and met this man who was so grateful that they were there to rescue him and they talked a little bit about the harrowing uh, times that he had had there but that he managed to survive and this captain looked up on the shore a little bit further up the sand toward the dunes and saw three dwelling places, three huts and the guy who had been shipwrecked for so long indicated that he was the only survivor, but, but nevertheless there were these three huts. And so the captain said, well, I don't understand. You've got three up there. What is, what is that hut to the left? And he said, oh, well, that's my home, my house. That's, that's where I sleep. Uh, that's where after I cook my meal outside, I, I take the food in and I will eat in there, dine in there just like I'm at a dining room table. I tried to make it feel as much like a home as I possibly could. It's where I would, I would write accounts in my diary and the like. So that was really kind of like my home. And the fellow said, well, that, I understand that. What about the hut in the middle? He said, oh, well, I call that my church. Uh, that's where I go to worship God. And I went in there so often to pray to God, to petition that someone like you would come and rescue me. But nevertheless, it was where I did everything I could to remain faithful and to pray and even sing praises to God while I was in there. So it was basically where I would go to worship and, and the captain just thought that is so admirable that is just so wonderful this is an amazing amazing man what a righteous righteous man but there was still the third hut and he said well what about this third hut over here and at that point the guy who'd been shipwrecked his face got all glum and he rolled his eyes and he said oh that's the church I used to go to so <laughs> an oldie but a goodie I like that story, though, because in a way, it's, the part of what's funny about it is that he found it hard enough to live with himself and worship with himself. But I think that brings up an important point. Uh, it reminds me of what Philip Yancey wrote in one of his thin books called Church, Why Bother? And, and Yancey talks about a time in his life when he became very cynical about the church, just so jaded, wanting to give up on it. And he really was about to just give up on the church. And then one morning he had a revelation. And this revelatory moment came in the form of a question, and he basically asked himself, what if everybody in the church was exactly like me? And he realized that would be trouble. We'd be in bad shape. It made him realize that in spite of, you know, a, a variety of personalities and temperaments and people that sometimes rub up against each other like sandpaper and all that, we still need each other in the church. 
And we need to be unified, as Paul says in the passage that David read a moment ago. We have to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That phrase, make every effort, that's one word in the Greek, and and it connotes an urgency. It really means you've got to make every effort starting now. Do whatever it takes, whatever sacrifice you have to make to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the church. That's what he's talking about. There's an urgency about it. But let me ask you this. Was there an urgency on Jesus' part? The passage that Francis read just a moment ago. What was primarily on Jesus' mind the last hours of his life on earth? What was the dominant theme that you find in the Gospels toward the end, particularly in the Gospel of John? He is concerned about the unity of his followers. You go to John chapter 17, which was read just a moment ago, and that is what he is praying for, is that the people would be unified and glorify him by being together as one. That was his primary preoccupation was unity. So I think it's very important as we begin this journey into community for the weeks to come, we need to start out to commit ourselves, covenant together to be unified. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Unfortunately, our scripture passage helps us understand this quite clearly. First of all, we submit to each other. We don't even like that word, do we? But we've got to submit to each other. I know that's easier said than done, but listen, I'm not going to give you 10 steps on how we can get along better and 10 practical steps on how we can submit to one another. I really want us to look through a theological framework for a minute. We're going to get real theological. Micah, I, don't, I know you don't like getting theological like this, but we're just going to have to. You're going to have to deal with it. Micah's good with theology. But I think this is so important. In fact, you know what? Look at the uh, worship destination. Look in your bulletin. Look at the order of worship right up at the very beginning. And I so definitely forgot to bring it up with, to the pulpit with me, but it says something along the lines of, let's see, Ethan, you got it. Read it out loud there. Just as God is in community, we should be too. We didn't even collaborate this week on putting that together, but you nailed it. You nailed it. Usually we do. We just were irresponsible this week, but that's exactly right. Just as God is in community, we should be too. That's exactly where I'm going. Now, you're going to have to follow me on this because we're really looking at this through a theological framework. That's our worship destination for this very morning. Paul talks about the unity in a sense of the Trinity, even as he is calling us, admonishing us to be unified as a church. Let me go to Ephesians 4 that was read just a moment ago. Let me start at verse 4 where Paul, to drive home his point on how we need to be united together, says, there is one body and one spirit, Holy Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, Son, the Son, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You notice even in this word where he's trying to drive home the theme of unity, he brings up the Trinity, Spirit, Son, Father. And that's so important when we look at this, because to really see why unity is so important and how we go about it, you need not look farther than God himself. In fact, sometimes when we talk about unity in the church, all we're thinking about is, well, how do we get along better? How do we forgive better? How do we live at peace together? No, you know what? Let's get beyond that and focus on the sovereign God of all things, because he is our role model right there. To see why it's so important to God, you need to realize you got to go all the way back to the beginning of time, in fact, before time as we understand it. you got to go back to before creation, because what was there before creation? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, or as we call it, Trinity, the Trinity. 
And there was a unity that was rooted in the very being of God and is to this day. There's a unity in the being of God. Now, how would you describe this Godhead that we have imposed the name Trinity upon? First of all, it's an intimate relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's this mutual indwelling. There's a word in the New Testament that speaks to this indwelling of the Trinity, and it's the word perichoresis in the Greek. Now, it's a cool word, perichoresis. The second part, choresis, that's where we get the word for choreography. It's a word that means dance or dancing together. It's a beautiful image of, of this beautiful dance of selfless love between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, back to the Father. It's this beautiful dance, this beautiful give and take, this beautiful ebb and flow between those. Now stay with me. We're really getting somewhere with this. How else would you describe the Trinity? Okay, it's, it's, it's intimate, this wonderful dance. Here's another word you might not think about. Shy. Shy. Dale Bruner is a professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he wrote a book on the Trinity. And it was all about the shyness of the three persons in one of the Trinity. Very, very interesting. Now, we're not talking about shyness like timidity of someone who is weak, someone who is dependent. It's a shyness that is bold enough to focus always on the other. You know how much energy and strength it takes to always be focused on the other person, it's a shyness that's bold and selfless in the way it shines on the other person. He starts talking about the Spirit, first of all, and he talks about primarily in the Gospel of John, how the Spirit is always drawing attention to Jesus, the Son, you know, glorifying Him, bearing witness to Him, uh, uh, coming in, in His name, glorifying Him. Basically, the Spirit throughout the Gospel of John and through all the Gospels is saying, no, no, not me, look at Him, devote your life to Him, learn from Him, listen to Him. But Jesus himself defers to the Spirit, shows a shyness in pointing back toward the Spirit and really a submission to the Spirit. He doesn't sit there and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. He submits himself, first of all, to the Spirit. One example is, you remember, how he, why did he go into the wilderness as he was baptized? Who was it who led him to the wilderness? Do you remember what it says? Spirit led him into the wilderness, and he submitted to the Spirit, went into the wilderness. Did he submit to his Father? What did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane after he said, let this cup pass from me? He said, no, not my will, but yours be done. But yet, even the Father is shy. <laughs> Just two good examples, twice in the Gospels, once at Jesus' baptism, later on at the transfiguration. What does God say? Because he speaks at that time, and he says what? This is my Son, with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And it's fascinating as you study the Gospels more and more because you realize what Dale Bruner is saying, that there's this shyness. Each member is always pointing the attention to the other, highlighting the other, wanting you to focus on the other. And they're doing this faithfully and selflessly in this beautiful, selfless, delightful dance. And they're delighting each other. And they're united in doing that. It's this wonderful dance of mutual submission, mutual delight, and yes, mutual love. Now... I bring all this theological framework to you because there are two things I really want you to hear when we think about all this. First of all, God created you because he wanted you to be a part of this amazing dance called life, called church, called sharing the grace of Christ with each other and out there in the world. He wanted you to be a part of this dance. He did not create you because he was lonely or bored. He didn't create you because he needed you. He invited you become, to become a part of this incredible musical production, if you will. 
And, and so that's wonderful. And, and think of the grace of that, just the fact that you are alive, that you have the breath of life, that you have friends, that you have family, that you have a place here to come worship and glorify God. But let's take it a step further because that's all great, but when you were created, you were created in the very image of God. Take it a step further. Created in the very image of the Trinity. So here you go. As you engage in this dance of life, and even more so of church, you are expected to act in the very way that the Trinity does. Selfless. Mutual submission. Delighting in the other no matter what. Focusing on others. And and it really does begin with church. And, And how do you do it? Paul gives us some very practical ways. In Ephesians 6, 2, if you look at that, he begins by saying what? Be humble and be patient. Be humble and be patient. And, 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 and these adjectives, or let me, let me back up. He starts out by saying be humble and gentle. I'll save patient for later because there's something extra I want to say about that. Starts out with humble and gentle. It's important to understand that in the Greco-Roman world, these words were always spurned, frowned upon, rejected really all through Near Eastern history, and I would say Western history as it's understood over there at that time, through all the centuries, those two words really were disparaged. They were looked at in a a negative way. It was really when Christ came along, and as the Gospels were written down, and then Paul's letters were written, and all the other writings in the New Testament, that words like humble and gentle were turned into the positive. Why? Because they all said, this is the character of God. This is the nature of God. Yes, this is the nature of the Trinity. Shyly, humbly, gently pointing to one another. It's a brand new concept. But again, it reflects the selfless love of the Trinity. So to be the church is to be related to each other in that same spirit of delighting in the other, submitting to the other, serving the other. That's what we're called to do. So again, let me keep this in mind. Your being a part of this dance came at the highest cost. Think about this. You're invited to be a part of that. But what did it take? Well, the son was killed. He suffered and died because of that. Secondly, the father had to watch his son suffer and die. Watch his son be killed. And the spirit grieved over the killing of the son. So it came at the highest cost, with the highest pain for God. So keep keep that in mind. You were invited to this dance. And you're expected to act as the Godhead acts in this selfless delight, this selfless service to one another. And not to do so is to dishonor the Trinity. It's to dishonor the Godhead. So if we allow slander to go tolerated, if we allow gossip to just continue, if someone fails to go and confront someone, someone else in love, if someone just talks behind someone's back and complains about them and doesn't go face-to-face to the person, you are dishonoring the Godhead. I hope we don't take that lightly and you don't keep that up in theory land. Because that's what you and I are doing when we are failing to contribute to the unity of the church just as there is unity of the Godhead. So important, and I hope and pray that you and I can grasp that as we go along. We've got to submit to one another, but also there's something else in this passage. We bear up with one another. We patiently bear up with one another. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 2. It says, be completely humble and gentle. And then it says this, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Two very important words here. Now I'll get to that word, patient, because that's vital for unity. 
Uh, I read a book by Anne Lamott recently, her, her most recent one, and she's a very engaging, very different kind of a writer. But, but in, in one passage, she wrote this, and it's two sentences, and I just love how she put it. She said, I have a friend from Texas who once said that the three things I can't change are the past, the truth, and you. And then she said, I hate this insight so much. <laughs> and you know why. We don't like the fact that we can't change the past, we can't change the truth, and I can't change you, and you can't change me. It'd be great if we could, you know, clean up the past of our lives a little bit, make things a little bit better. It'd be great if we could all, if the, it'd be great if the truth never hurt, but sometimes it does. But all the more, and probably most difficult, is the fact that I cannot change you. And that's difficult. Sometimes I wish I could change you, whoever you are. But you know what? I need to remember people wish they could change me as well. And I think once we grasp that, that can help us at least begin to be a little more patient with one another as we journey forth together. But it doesn't just say to be patient with one another. It says to be bearing with one another. It's a beautiful image there. It really means bearing one another up, carrying one another, lifting each other up, checking on each other. Keeping checks on each other, that is so vital. I know that sounds so basic, but I wonder if we realize just what a difference something that simple makes. We can talk about having in-reach and outreach and things like that, but how effectively do we really do it? And I hope and pray that this year we will do it better than Brookwood ever has because it makes a difference. You can even study it scientifically and see that. Speaking of scientists, some of you all know Greg Davis, who's a deacon here in the church, very much a scientist. He's sort of bright. And uh, this past week, he showed me an article in the New Yorker magazine, the most recent art, uh, issue of the New Yorker. Really interesting story. In July 1995, some of you remember this, there was a heat wave that hit Chicago, and it killed a lot of people, 739 people, seven times the number of people who were killed recently with Superstorm Sandy. And soon after this, a lot of social scientists came in and started to study the patterns behind the deaths in this terrible heat wave in Chicago in 1995. Interesting stuff that they found. They found that the majority of the neighborhoods with the highest death rates were poor, had violent crime, and were African-American predominantly. But this is interesting. On the flip side, three out of the neighborhoods with the lowest heat wave deaths in the whole city of Chicago, Metro Chicago, were also poor, were known for their violence, and were African-American. And two of these contrasting neighborhoods were right beside each other. Uh, I can't remember when the youth went on the Chicago mission trip. There's an area called Inglewood. Did y'all hit Inglewood at all? There's Inglewood and then Auburn Gresham. And they're right beside each other. They're adjacent to each other. Inglewood, though, was one of those negative uh, examples. Again, Inglewood had the worst, some of the worst places with a heat wave. 33, there were 33 deaths out of 100,000 people in that large area, that large uh, neighborhood. Auburn Gresham was 300% better, safer. In fact, it was safer than most all of the affluent neighborhoods in the northern part of Chicago. Strange. What was the difference? And the more these scientists studied it, they realized, you know, Englewood was not worse because it was poor or predominantly black or violent. What they found was it had cultivated what they call a culture of isolation. People just did not look out for each other, and there wasn't this sense of social cohesion, of of social, social unity. They didn't have a strong sense of community. The people just chose to live in isolation from one another. Auburn Gresham was just the opposite. You know, they didn't have a better ambulance service. They didn't have better governmental relief organizations coming in, anything like that. They were simply a more tight-knit 
neighborhood. Um, they had block, uh, par- block parties a lot, block clubs. They checked on each other. They cared for one another. They were real careful to learn everybody's names up and down the street and just kept up with everybody. And that was the bottom line difference. They bore with one another, as Paul says. And I like the way one neighborhood leader said it at the end of the article. He was from Auburn Gresham where things were so much safer. And he says, here's the difference. We know who's alone and who's aging and who's sick. And then he said this, it's what we always do when it's very hot or very cold. (laughs) Is that what we always do when crisis comes our way? Brookwood is usually great about being there for people in crisis, but are we always there? Can we even do better with that? And and let's take that image a a bit further. You know, we are becoming more and more and more in the world a minority as the church. And we will be subjected to more antagonism and opposition out there. Yes, and, and on some level, you and I will have to face more violence out there on whatever level it might be. Not the violence that some of our brothers and sisters have to face in Vietnam or the Sudan or in Iran But nevertheless, on some level, you and I will face violence out there if we are confessing believers in Jesus Christ and brothers and sisters in his name. So again, it can get very hot out there and very cold. And and within the church, there are hot times and cold times. Usually it's somewhere in between, but there can be difficult times within the church as well. Again, that's when you and I have to step up and be the kind of unified church we are called to be. And even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we look out all the more for the people who are weaker, just as Auburn Gresham looked for the people who are aged or disabled. We do the same thing for people who are weaker in whatever way, not just being aged necessarily or disabled, but even dysfunctional. Even the people with the most difficult temperaments to deal with, you know what? We treat them with care as well. I think it's only then that people will truly know that we, well, we just sang it, they will know we're Christians, well, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, that you, fill in the blank, are intelligent, that you're affluent, that you're productive, that you're successful, that you have great Bible knowledge, that you show up to church enough, that you give enough to missions, that you do evangelism. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, that you have, does somebody know? Love for one another. What did we just sing in a minute ago? They will know we are Christians, what? By our love. That's how we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We, we submit to one another just as the Trinity does in that incredible, delightful dance that the Trinity does. And we bear up one another and make a difference that way. But one other way, this is my final point, we glorify God together and just bask in the wondrous glow of that glorifying of God. Let me go back to John 17, which Francis read. Uh, John 17, verse 22 is such a great passage. Jesus is praying for the unity of his followers, praying for the unity of the church, and he says this, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Let me read the first part of it again. I have given them the glory that you gave me. He has given us incredible (laughs) glory. And wouldn't it be great if you and I could focus a lot less on each other in terms of what we think about each other, or analyzing each other, or complaining about whatever, and just focus on his glory and marvel at his mystery and majesty and holiness. I remember being at the Grand Canyon a few years ago, and, and there was a big crowd there, and it was close to time of, of the sun setting, and it was just, 
Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon to see the sun, you know, the light dancing off, uh, you know, those different parts of the cliff, and it just, all these different colors are just, just remarkable. And, and, and you just gaze upon it. I remember sitting there, and, and I've heard, the, I've never seen the sunrise of it. I've heard, anybody been to the sunrise of Grand Canyon? I, I've heard that's incredible. I was there, sunset, and it was just beautiful. But what really struck me was this. There were just so many different people there, but there really wasn't a whole lot of talking going on. We were all just fixed in the same direction, just just in awe of what we were looking at. I remember when people would talk, you would just hear all manner of languages, just all different kinds, and and every kind of skin tone that you could possibly look at, and different wardrobes that you could see, most of them casual, but some of them not. It was just amazing, and and I just thought about that. I thought, isn't this the way (laughs) the church ought to be? A lot of diversity and differentness out there, but just gazing in wonder at how incredibly grace-giving God is to the world and to us. And I think that's the way it should be. It really takes us back to that Trinitarian God, you know, focusing not so much on ourselves, but on, on one another, and especially on him and his mystery and his holiness. And we, if we can do that, I really think we can gather together as a broken people now made whole by Christ, by his sacrifice. We can gather together as, as spiritually poor peasants and confess our need for him and glorify him, especially for what he has done for us. And speaking of poor, I want to close talking about this, this poor community in Paraguay. I don't know if any of y'all saw this. This was on PBS recently, and it just amazed me. We're going to see a, a brief video of it. It's an amazing orchestra that's called the Recycled Orchestra. And it's amazing. There are these instruments that are made from recycled trash. Just to give you a little bit of background, there are these young musicians from a slum in Paraguay called Katura. And it's literally built on a landfill. Every day, 1,500, not pounds, 1,500 tons of trash is dumped into this huge, huge landfill. And over 1,000 residents of this poor slum town spend their entire days sifting through this trash, trying to find something of value. In fact, they have a name. They're called gancheros, uh, these garbage pickers. Again, the the uh, long hooks that they use to pick the stuff up, those are called ganchos, and so they're called gancheros. And two musicians who heard about this landfill where a lot of people lived, this huge trash dump, they were Fabio Chavez and Luis Sarazan, and, and they're two musicians. And they saw the desperate poverty and the terrible health conditions at this landfill, and they decided, (laughs) strangely enough, to open a music school there. They said, maybe we can be of help. This is what we have to offer. We're musicians. And so Chavez loaned his five, he only had five instruments, but he loaned those out, a violin or two, a viola, a cello, and then they were out. But all these other people were coming up saying, oh, can we be a part of this orchestra? And they didn't know what to do. And then they met a guy who was one of the trash pickers, one of the uh, concertos, whose name was Nicholas Gomez, And they heard that he was a creative craftsman, and they just said, could you make some instruments? He said, sure. I mean, they were blown away. They thought, you really can't do this. He said, sure, I can do that. And he began to make instruments out of recycled material. For instance, and you'll see this in the video, there's a cello made out of an oil can and old cooking tools. There's a flute that comes from tin cans. There's a drum that uses x-rays as the skin of part of the drum. You have bottle caps that serve as keys on a saxophone you see a violin that's made from this battered aluminum salad bowl and it's tuned with literal forks like you and i use and they're known as the recycled orchestra i'd like for you just to watch this it's just a couple of minutes long but it's just amazing as you watch what they've been able to create at this landfill
Chávez, más conocido como Eddie, tengo 19 años y toco el chelo. Este chelo está hecho de una lata de aceite, la madera tirada en la basura y las clavijas son de una vieja cuchara para golpear la carne y para hacer el ñoquis. Y suena así. <música> Para mí la música es la sonrisa del alma. Y el ser músico me permite eh, entrar en el alma de las personas. Siempre supe del poder de la música eh, como elemento de transformación social. Nunca antes de él, ni el Estado, ni ninguna institución eh, había planteado algo similar. Sin embargo, el maestro Sarán fue y planteó, no, esto va a ser gratis y quiero que asistan los niños que menos recursos tienen. Un buen día le propuse llevar sonidos de la tierra a Cateura y él, por supuesto, me dijo, si vos te animas, yo te voy a apoyar. Tuvimos la situación de que la cantidad de niños, por supuesto, excedía las posibilidades de brindar instrumentos a todos. Bueno, al comienzo solamente había cinco violines y éramos como... 50 violinistas. La familia que acá vive recicla todo lo que hay en la basura y se vende. Buscando qué construir, se nos ocurrió hacer algo con la basura. Él, con una cacerola vieja que había encontrado unos restos de tenedores, latas, hizo la réplica de un violín. Me dijo mi amigo, tú hiciste ese negro. Y sí, yo hago. No, no te creo, me dijo. Cuando vimos eso nos matamos de risa, o sea, parecía una broma, ¿no? Sin embargo, nos dimos cuenta que el instrumento funcionaba y que un niño puede comenzar sus primeras lecciones con dignidad con ese instrumento. Mi violín está hecho de un tenedor. Esta flauta está hecha de un tubo de agua. Este contrabajo está hecho de un tambor de productos químicos. <risa> tiene iniciativa, uno tiene creatividad, hasta la propia basura puede convertir en una herramienta educativa que cambie tu vida y la vida de mucha gente. Y eso nos inspiró a crear toda una orquesta que transmita esa filosofía a la gente. And miraculous. Some of y'all remember the cartoon with Bill Cosby, you know, on Saturday mornings, and he'd ha they'd have the junkyard band. Do you remember that? Some of y'all who were old enough. And I thought, well, that's fun on a cartoon, but, but, you know, that could never really happen. To me, it's just miraculous. And I love what Chavez says, the main conductor there. He said, this has taught me one profound lesson. People realize that we shouldn't throw away trash carelessly. Well, we shouldn't throw away people either. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been tempted to throw somebody away <laughs> in, your, in your home, in your family, uh, particularly your church family. And yet what we're called to do is try to do everything we can to make some beautiful music in this incredible dance that we do. Or look at it another way. You know, God reached down into the landfill of your making and salvaged you and redeemed you. I think the least we can do is build this sense of unity that he commands us to do. Let's, let's bow our heads. And for just a moment as we enter into the discipline of meditation, if you could 
join me and just commit yourself to uh, giving more of yourself to the unity of the Godhead, first of all, and showing your unity to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by engaging in the stance in a way that shows delight and focusing on the other and committing yourself all the more to being unified, especially with that person or those persons that are the most difficult to love. Just take a minute and confess to God that you will commit yourself to contributing all the more to the community and the unity of that community. Will you do that, please? thank you for this church family may we realize that we are your body in a sense and because of that we need to remain as one help us to commit to that in all we do especially as we begin this journey together toward understanding what it means to be a community of faith a family a tribe help us to understand truly what that means that we might follow in your footsteps in this delightful delightful dance pray these things in your name. Amen.